Amen. And thank you to our team for leading us to the throne in worship. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here. And I want to add my welcome. We are delighted that you are here this morning. This morning is April, and we have been tracking through the Gospel of Mark this spring semester, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And we've said throughout this entire sermon series that the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. It's not about you and me or any of us simply trying to believe more, trying harder to do more, to be better, to be more accepted. No, it's simply looking at the life ministry of Jesus, looking at him as the object of our faith, and that is what grows our faith. And so we've been looking through the gospel of Mark to get Mark's perspective. And I think it's a very pertinent gospel for us because Mark is writing his gospel account from Rome to a Roman readership. They are a very pragmatic people, those Romans. They just want to know how life works. In an upside down sort of pagan culture that is all fixated on greatness. What does it require for a person to be great? And they saw the examples and the models of the Caesars. What is greatness? Most of the time when we study our Bible, our Bibles are studying us and reading us more than we're reading them. It's the title of this morning's message is Greatness. The people of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago and the people of East Texas today are dealing with the issue of greatness. Now, when we talk about greatness, you kind of have to understand, in the mind of a Jewish person, the Hebraic culture and context, there were essentially two ages there is the present age that is characterized by suffering, pain, persecution, resistance, opposition, and death. Woohoo! But there is the age to come when everything will be set to rights. There will be righteousness, there will be justice, and there will be greatness. And so the question that every civilization, every society, every people group and person has ever asked for all human history is, how can I... How can my family, how can my group, how can we experience and enjoy greatness in the here and now? And every broadcast media, every aspect of social media is trying to convince you in one way or the other through this persistent waterboarding to tell you how you can achieve, experience, and enjoy greatness in this day and age. But amazingly, some 2,000 years ago, we have the gospel of Mark that's going to tell us actually what greatness is. It's our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. Greatness is loving God and loving others. And if you tweet that out this afternoon, you're going to get precisely zero likes. It's not a popular message, but it is the refrain of our Bible from the table of contents straight through to the maps. Greatness is loving God and loving others. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Now we have made it all the way through Mark chapter 11, and we've said almost every week that the king has come and his kingdom is here, but this kingdom does not operate like they expected, like they wanted even the disciples didn't understand who Jesus was and what he was there to accomplish. They argued amongst themselves, you might remember, who was the greatest. Because there is a gravity to our depravity. We want to elevate. We want to suppress others and elevate ourselves. And so even the disciples of the Messiah walking around in Galilee are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus is like, y'all can't even tie your shoes. What are you arguing about? Who's the greatest? The king has come, his kingdom is here, but it isn't what we expected. So how does a person enjoy and experience greatness? Mark chapter 12 is rather lengthy, but I want to boil it down into, well, here we go again. It's almost time for lunch. So I'm going to ask you to focus with me for just a moment. We have another one of our tasty Markin sandwiches. Mark likes to write in sandwiches. He gives a whole bunch of bread and a whole bunch of fixins, and then right in the middle is the thing, and then some more fixins and some bread. Chapter 12 is a Mark sandwich, and I want you to pay attention. He's going to give us three vignettes to talk about what is greatness. We've made it through Mark chapter 11. Jesus has completed his triumphal entry, fulfilling 
perfectly and precisely and on time the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and most particularly Zechariah 9.9. It says, Israel, your king shall ride in on the foal of a donkey that's never been ridden. And Jesus goes, that's how it's going to go down. Precisely to the day that Daniel 9 says it will occur, it occurs. Jesus has got a tight schedule to keep. So he's now in Jerusalem. Most of his ministry has been up in the Galilee. He's moved south into Judea and Perea across the Jordan. Now he's in Jerusalem and he's going to go headlong purposefully into conflict and collision. He's on Temple Mount and he's been approached by these chief priests, these scribes, and these these elders who are trying to get him to trip up and to stumble. Never a good idea with Jesus. Let's pick up reading here in chapter 12. And he began to speak to them, the chief priests, the scribes, that is the legislators, those guys that were continuing to write oral tradition on top of Moses and Torah and the prophets. They continued to write additional things. He began to speak to them in parables. And he said, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, this was a very common frequent practice, particularly up in the fertile lands around the Sea of Galilee. Foreign landowners, often Gentiles, would have very large estates and they would lease these estates to the local people, the Israelite people of the northern part of Israel and the Galilee. And they would say, hey, I'm going to dig a wine press. I'm going to plant a vineyard. I'm going to build a tower for protection. I'm going to put up a fence for demarcation of my place. You can work the land. You can keep some of the proceeds, but I am due my proceeds. And this was a very common thing. And Jesus gives them this parable. Now remember, most of the time, parables were to obscure the truth from those who were not willing to receive it, but to illumine the truth for those that did want to see the truth. Not this time. Jesus is going to take dead aim and hit them directly between the eyes. He's not just using an agricultural metaphor this time. This is almost a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 5. Very quickly, Isaiah chapter 5, just verses 1 and 2. This is 750 years before the first coming of Christ. And the prophet Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wine grapes. And Isaiah will continue on in chapter 5. Therefore, the Lord will come and deal harshly with those tenants. Because what would happen is the gravity of depravity, these tenants would start to resent the foreign landowner and go, hey, I don't want to pay you what you're owed. I'm working the land. I deserve to keep all the credits. And so Jesus continues in verse 2 of Mark chapter 12. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, these chief priests and scribes and elders are standing in the temple courts and they're hearing this taught. They know that this is about Israel. Without question, Isaiah 5 goes on to explain that the vineyard represents Israel and the owner of the vineyard is, of course, God himself. Verse 3 of chapter 12. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, that's not how you treat the owner's servant. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. They disgraced him. Clearly, Jesus is referring to the prophets that God sent mouthpieces and messengers of his word to the nation of Israel, and more specifically, to the leaders of Israel. You know, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Verse 5, and he sent another, and they Him they killed, and so with many others. It wasn't just three. There was a lot. This landowner keeps sending servants, a clear reference to the prophets, the messengers, giving God's word to the leaders of Israel. Verse six, he he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him, the son, to them, saying, they will respect my son. The, The heart of compassion and concern, this slow to anger landowner, this benevolent one who says, I know they keep doing this, but I want what's best for them. I want their good. I will send my very son. Surely they will respect him. But in those days, there was a custom. 
If the landowner has died and there is no heir, then the tenants get to take the land. And so the point of Jesus' parable is they assume in the parable that the landowner has died. And so the tenants think if we just kill the son, then by law, we will have this to ourselves and we can be great. Well, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard, this disgraceful, they just throw his body outside the camp, something, this is a reference to how Jesus is ultimately crucified outside the camp of Jerusalem. They threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus then pauses the story and he looks at them and he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He doesn't give them a chance to answer. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's right. He'll take Israel from the leaders of Israel and he will give it to Gentiles. Ooh, they did not want to hear this. What is Jesus' point? Oh, the father, the owner is not dead, nor is he disinterested. He is very much aware and he knows how the leaders are trying to pursue greatness in their own way and how they will destroy the son of the landowner. And then Jesus says this, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is not going to take the bait. They keep trying to trap him. Instead, there on Temple Mount, Jesus is going to continuously do Bible exposition. He's simply going to refer to Scripture. At the end of chapter 11, they try to say, hey, by whose authority are you doing this? They're trying to find out, is he just some insurrectionist? Is he some fringe, zealous rabbi? Whose authority is he doing this by? Jesus won't take the bait. Now he's going to do Bible exposition and say, hey, this is the same psalm that the people were quoting as I was coming in on my triumphal entry, Psalm 118, that everybody knew was a messianic psalm. And these leaders had heard the people who were all gathered together for Passover. And there would have been a couple million people in Jerusalem. The population would have swollen like crazy. And they're all quoting this messianic psalm to Jesus as he rides in. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 118 again to say, hey, just so you guys know, you're trying to trap me, but the Lord is doing this thing and you have rejected the high cornerstone. Not the cornerstone that get the base of the building. That's what we like to think of. No, no, no. The final capstone that brings the whole thing together. You have tried to discard it, but God's estimation of what is great is greater still. And he has said, it is marvelous. It is marvelous in our eyes. It is greatness. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12 and they were seeking to arrest him. How do they react to this parable? Oh, they understand very clearly what this parable is about. And they react precisely the way Jesus says they will react. You would think they would go, oh, I'm not going to take that one. But they do exactly what Jesus says they will do. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Did you think? They're very good, fellas. They had this one they understood. So they left him and went away. These guys are trying to achieve greatness on their own and in their own way. And they're trying to save face. They're bothered by the population that has swollen and the crowds that seem to like the teaching of this Jesus. But they themselves have managed to eke out and scratch out some level of prestige and power and prominence. And they think they're great. The two great enemies of the faith, power and status. And this Jesus represents a threat to their greatness. And if the Romans get wind of this, they will take it away. If the people get wind of this, they will take it away. And so these leaders have no choice but to conspire. That's vignette number one. Jesus says, you think you have greatness. You are guilty of a great wrongdoing against God's purpose and his program and even his people. Which takes us then into vignette number two. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Record scratch. That cannot be in your Bible, but it's in your Bible. So we've got this second group of influencers that now comes. First, we have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Sort of the, um, 
the Congress and the Senate, you might say. But they are frustrated. They're sort of impugned by their own conspiracy and plan. And so they now send the Pharisees and the Herodians. These are the arch rivals of arch rivals of Israel of the day. The Pharisees were the fighting fundamentalists. The Pharisees loved the, the law of Moses, Torah, and they loved all the writings of the prophets and the Psalms, and they loved all the oral traditions that came after. And they were very popular with the people. And they put their foot in the ground and they said, oh, heck no, not on our watch. We will not be Hellenized. We will not be infiltrated by Greek culture. We will stay Israel. And so the people loved the Pharisees because they held the line for tradition, for our heritage, for our backstory. But the Herodians, well, you can hear in their name, descendants of Herod, they were very cozy with Greek culture. They were very cozy with Roman imperial rule. They, just like Herod the Great, had profited massively from Rome's occupation. And the people didn't like the Herodians at all, and they didn't care. But these two enemies make strange bedfellows because they have a joint project to try to trap Jesus. So they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, and then they're going to try to butter him up. Always a good idea to butter Jesus up, right? They're going to just hit him with this perfunctory flattery that is completely false and hollow. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. By the way, neither side believed that. They thought, remember, they accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan, so this is totally a falsehood of what they're saying here. And so they ask him a question, but I want you to notice, they ask him the question twice. They repeat themselves. It's in the emphatic. They really want him to answer. They're trying to force Jesus into a trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they repeat it. Should we pay them or should we not? This is a brilliant ploy. I got to give them credit. It really is clever. Remember how I opened up. There are, in the Hebrew mind, there are two ages. There is the current age of suffering, resistance, opposition, pain, and death. And then there's the coming age. But this Jesus has been preaching about the coming kingdom. If Jesus says, yeah, sure, whatever, go ahead and pay the taxes, then they've got him. Then all that he's been preaching about a literal kingdom coming will have been a sham. He's been preaching that the coming age is breaking forth even now and that he's the bringer of the coming age, that it's him. But if he says, yeah, just pay your taxes to Caesar, then he will lose all of his credibility, all of his steam, and then the people won't be for him, and then they can do to him whatever they choose. But you got the Herodian side. If Jesus says, no, do not pay the taxes, then Rome will come in and crush him. Why do we know that? because we know that there was a guy named Judas the Galilean. No, not Judas the disciple. There was a guy named Judas the Galilean. And this might be hard for you to follow along, but his name was Judas, and, and he was from Galilee. And he was a revolutionary right before the time of Jesus. And he finally said that any Israelite that paid what was called the head tax, any Israelite that paid the head tax to Rome was a coward. And so he gathered about 4,000 people around him and they marched on Jerusalem while the Romans weren't paying attention and they, they cleaned the temple out. Sound familiar? And they said, we are Israel, we are God's chosen people. And then the Romans came in and slaughtered and skinned everybody alive and butchered everybody. And so these guys want to know, hey, are you just another one of those types that if you say don't pay the tax, Rome will come in and put down this rebellion of yours. Now we've got him. If he says pay the taxes, he's a joke. If he says don't pay the taxes, Rome will crush him. We've got him until you don't because, you know, he's Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy... He knows that they're just trying to trap them. He said to them, why put me to the test? This is gonna be a long day, Jesus. He's gonna, be, he's gonna be tested several times like this. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now that's funny. He's just had a triumphal entry. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He doesn't even have a quarter. 
<laughs> he didn't have a denarius. A denarius is not that much. It's like a silver penny. It represented the lowest wages for a day for the lowest compensated workman. So it's, it's, it's not even probably a dollar. It's probably like a 50 cent piece. And this king ain't even got a quarter because that's not where greatness comes from. Do you see what Jesus is showing? I want you to look at this Jesus. I want you to marvel. I want you to love him. He doesn't even have a quarter, this Jesus. Bring me one. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And they were right. The coin that they bring him would have had a, an icon. The likeness is the word icon, where we get our word for icon. It's a picture of his face. And it said, Caesar Tiberius. And then in shorthand script, watch what the inscription says. Caesar Tiberius, son of God, Augustus, Pontiff Maxus, high priest. So the coin says, <laughs> Caesar Tiberius, son of God, high priest. Whoa! Now that would have been particularly galling to the Pharisees. Jesus could have taken great offense at it, but it's astonishing how Jesus answers. Jesus said to them, render. Now, some of your translations might say give. No, no, render. Not give as though it's a grace or a gift. No, render, pay back. This coin belongs to him because it literally did. All these denarii were literally minted out of Caesar's personal trove of silver. It was his money. And Jesus says, that's not where greatness is found anyway. It's his Pay it back to him. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They just go, and I quote, because they, they, we thought we had him. We thought we trapped him. Jesus goes, no, that's not where greatness comes from. Render, pay back to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay back to God that which is God's. And they should have said, well, then, where do we find the likeness and the inscription of God? If we have the likeness and the inscription of Caesar here, then what is God's? And Jesus would have said, you, you. Give God you. You know the scriptures Jesus very subtly does it reference. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You were created in his image for his good pleasure. Give Caesar what's his. I'm more interested in your very life, in your very soul, your being, your essence, your existence. Give that to God. Let's not worry about taxes. Let's not worry about power and prestige and propaganda and prominence and pragmatism. Let's talk about true greatness, that which is God. So there's vignette number one. We had the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now we've had the Pharisees and the Herodians, those strange batch of dudes. Now we're going to get a third influence group. It just keeps getting a little bit more interesting. Verse 18, and Sadducees, you can almost seem like they just usher off the stage. The next group ushers off the stage, and now here come the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the real uppity-ups. They're the blue bloods. These are the guys who are always the high priest. The high priest always comes from the party of the Sadducees. They do not believe in spiritual things. They do not believe in angels. They do not believe in the resurrection. And so they're sad, you see? That's where they get their name. Not true. It's an old preacher's joke, but that's the deal. And they only respect Torah. They only respect Torah from Moses. They don't adhere to the prophets' writings. They don't adhere to all the additional oral traditions. They just say, Moses, Moses, he's our guy. And so these guys go, silly chief priests and, and scribes and elders, silly Herodians and Pharisees, we'll handle this. Nobody liked the Sadducees, and the Sadducees did not care. They lived in the ultra-gated, gated communities of old Jerusalem, Okay. So they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, Moses wrote for us. And so they're trying to out Bible exposition, the living word. Never a good idea. When you try to convince Jesus that what the Bible really should say, it's not going to go well for you. They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Ah, so they're invoking Deuteronomy 25, this whole strange custom of what's called leveret marriage. 
And this was a policy and a procedure that Moses includes in Torah to say, look, we want the lineage and the heritage of the family line to continue. And let's say there's a, a husband and wife and he dies and she doesn't have any sons, then it's the responsibility of the brother to come in and give her an heir, which makes for a really freaky Thanksgiving. I understand that. But that's just how it goes, so that she's not left hopeless and destitute. But then these guys press the issue. They're trying to say there is no mention of the resurrection in Torah, the only scriptures that we care about. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to trap Jesus. There is no mention of resurrection. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, which at this point you should start to going, what's up with this chick? Like if I'm brother number six, I'm going, no way, man, I'm out. No way. That's not the point. It's just an illustration, all right? They're just trying to make a point. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Snicker, snicker, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Jesus. Remember, this is all up on Temple Mount. The crowds are all gathered around listening to this. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. <laughs> These guys are just laughing. They think this is so great. They've totally trapped him this time. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Oh, and then the laughter stops. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Boom. You're the high priest family. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, Jesus seems to think that there actually is a resurrection, not just for him, but for all those who are God's. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. They're not angels. Oh, Jesus just does something amazing. The greatest relationship in the cosmos is not marriage, as great as it is. Marriage merely reflects the great relationship in the cosmos, which is between God and man in Christ. That is the eternal, everlasting, and they should have known that from scriptures and because of the power of God. He continues, as for the dead being raised, oh, Jesus isn't finished. He's been doing this all day. This is Tuesday or Wednesday of Passion Week. He's going to do some more Bible exposition. Now, these three attempts to trap him are strange little vignettes as they're trying to protect their greatness. But let's remember what a big deal this is. This is Tuesday or Wednesday, some differing opinions on that. It's a big enough deal that by Friday, they will have stripped him naked, shamed him, spat on him, pulled out his beard, punched him in the face, scourged him, hanged him naked on a cross. Because of these three instances that take place in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is upending their understanding of greatness, and they don't like that very much. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? <laughs> That's a direct shot. He could have quoted Isaiah. He could have quoted the Psalms in Psalm 118. No, no, no. He goes right back at them. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? It's Exodus chapter 3, the passage of the burning bush. Well, remember, Moses is tending sheep, and he looks up, and he sees a bush on fire, yet not consumed. And it is a theophany an appearance of God in the Old Testament, which, by the way, would have been a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is going, do you remember the bush? I do. I was there. It was hot that day. <laughs> you remember the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am. <laughs> Jesus drops profound biblical theology on their heads and into their laps. When God spoke and said, I am, that is the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh. You remember when God said, I am, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God, and that's important for what he's about to say next. He is the covenant-keeping name of God. God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do y'all remember that? And they're like, well, yeah, but we don't understand it. And then Jesus drops the punchline here in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead because that would be a contradiction in terms. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping name of God. And God said, I promise, I swear, I build an oath by myself to bless you for all everlastingnesses. And if they were dead, then God would have failed and God would have been ungodded. And that is the one thing God cannot do is ungod God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he reminds them, you are quite wrong. 
Jesus had no time for the postmodern notion of what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. No, there is truth, objectively. And it's true whether you believe it or not. Jesus tells them, oh, listen, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, but they ain't dead. Because if they were still dead, God would have failed in his promise to be their God. But he is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God. They may have died, but they're not dead. This is the secret to greatness. A population who understands that one day they will die, but will never be dead, is capable of all kinds of greatness in everyday relationships, interactions, encounters. I may die one day. I will never be dead. You don't understand the scriptures that you claim to understand or the power of God. This is who he is. This is what he does. And so they fail. Third vignette. Now we're going to get more precise. Here at long last, in verse 28, we begin to get the meat of the Mark sandwich in verse 28. And one of the scribes who had been apparently watching all this, who had been dismissed in the first group, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, Jesus and the Sadducees, with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, because he didn't like the Sadducees either, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this is what scribes would do. They would sit around all day. And there were 613 commandments in the law of Moses. And they would sit around and they would debate, which commandment is the first? Which commandment is the most highest priority? Because how you answered determined your rabbinic school, your degree plan. Was it Ivy League? Was it SEC? How you answered the question told everybody your level of greatness. And did you go with the Ten Commandments? Did you go with one of the 613 commandments? Did you go to the oral tradition that was written after? And so he just wants Jesus. Whose side are you going to be on, Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus does a thing because that's what Jesus does. He totally jukes him. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, the Shema. That's the greatest command. Hear, O Israel, pay attention, understand, recognize, realize. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second, he adds one. This is not in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Jesus adds this. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He didn't get the answer that he wanted. Jesus says, oh, the greatest is huh, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, greatness is loving God and loving others. That's greatness. It's not all the stuff that you're trying to do and say. And the scribe said to him, you are right. Oh, and I'm sure Jesus appreciated that. Oh, really? Do I get a sticker? Oh, thanks you. Thanks very much. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he, and he uses he because he wouldn't allow himself to use the covenant-keeping name of God. No Jew would do that. He is one. In other words, this scribe has heard the reports that this Jesus claims to be divine, that he claims to be the son of God, that he, be, he claims to be God. And the scribe says, oh, you are correct. By your own mouth, the Lord our God is one. Hmm. And there is no other besides him, including you, false Messiah. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so he's pumping himself up, trying to get his own stroke, his own kudo, his own gold star. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far off from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, it's been thought that, hey, this guy's actually pretty close. Maybe he became a believer right there. And then, oh, no, 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 no. This guy's just said, hey, Jesus, by your own admission from Deuteronomy 6.4, you can't be divine. And so what does Jesus do? This is so great. You can't make this up. He does Bible exposition. He goes back to the Old Testament. And he quotes scripture. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And he quotes Psalm 110 now. The scribes love the Psalms. 
Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is the high watermark of the Messianic Psalms of the Old Testament. How can David say um, that the Christ, or how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, so Jesus seems to think that the scripture is God-breathed. Jesus seems to think that David wrote the psalm in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's instructive for us to remember. He declared, the Lord Yahweh said to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus asks, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? How can he be both the descendant of David and David's Lord? Hmm. And the scribes go, yeah, we don't actually know. That's a good one. I I, I, I don't know. And the great throng heard him gladly. Oh, we thought Jesus might have been undone there. Oh, no. They love this. Do you see how the population continues to swell and promote the teaching of Jesus? Now, just to make sure you don't start to think that this scribe was actually answering wisely and was converted right there, the next thing Jesus says after he says, oh, no, the son of David is Lord, and he is divine, and he is in the line of David, just like I am. And then he says in verse 38, and in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes. You know, like the one who just was trying to put me in my place? Beware those guys. Why? Because of their pomp and circumstance, because of their misunderstanding of greatness. They think they've achieved greatness. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They like to be called father and rabbi and teacher and master. They love the notoriety. They love to be perceived as great. You know why? because they're humans. We all love that. We're all looking for acknowledgement and acceptance for our accomplishments because we're all seeking to be great. Beware of those people who are trying to manufacture it themselves, Jesus says. This is good wisdom for us. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Wow. See, these scribes weren't actually compensated. They didn't have jobs. And so they had to guilt people into paying them. I know, I'm a preacher. I get it. I know, I know, I get it. They had to pay. They had to get money from people. And they would devour widows' houses. They would tell these women, these these widows with nothing, you have to support my law giving or, or God will be disappointed with you. And Jesus says, I hate that sort of misleading about what greatness is. It's not about their flowing robes and their expensive fineries and their greetings and their seats in the synagogues and their places and banquets. No, that's not what greatness is. And then we get finally this last piece of bread in the Mark sandwich. And he sat down opposite the treasury of the temple. There were these eight brass uh, trumpet-looking little vessels where people would dump in their offerings. And remember, it's the week of Passover, More than 2 million people are in Jerusalem, and so they're just pouring in all of their offerings, and it's making a very loud racket. They sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow, like the one Jesus has just mentioned, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Mark has to explain to his Roman readers, these little bronze little bitty, about the size of a sunflower seed, barely equate to a penny. And she, bing, she plinks them in there. Wow. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, if you rip that verse out of context, It's not about proportion in your giving. It's not about that. Jesus is saying, no, she is the one that understands greatness. She loves God and she loves others. These offerings were for the support of the poor, alms and charitable contributions to people who had nothing. And she put in her very life, her very soul, her very capacity for survival. She understood greatness, not the guy from beforehand. Now then, that's greatness. That's what it looks like. Loving God and loving others. But what about when everything goes wrong? Now, we're not going to spend the time this morning unpacking chapter 13. 
I want to just very, very briefly tell you about Mark chapter 13 because it's the longest teaching section in the gospel of Mark. We get Jesus teaching for a long time in Mark chapter 4, and then in chapter 13, we get what's called the Olivet Discourse. We have the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. We have the Olivet Discourse also in Luke 21. So it's a very important teaching. I'm not discounting it, but just like Jesus had a tight schedule to get to the cross by Friday, I've got to get to Mark 16 by Easter. And so I'm going to move right past the Olivet Discourse and tell you here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to walk east out of the temple confines. He's going to go walk down through the Kidron Valley. He's going to walk up the Mount of Olives and he's going to plop down with James and John and Peter and Andrew. And as they're walking, one of the disciples, probably Peter, goes, Dude, Jesus, check out the temple. Isn't it awesome? Now, we read that and we go, Peter, you come on, man. But if you've ever been there, you would understand. The stones that Herod assembled to build the temple are mind-boggling. There is one stone in particular called Einstein. It's one rock. And it's like the size of, I don't know, Tyler. It's enormous. And so they're going, this is greatness. It's one of the wonders of antiquity. This is greatness right here. We've achieved it. And Jesus says, nah, that's all coming down. And they all go, what? When's that all going to happen? And then Jesus sits them down and he gives them the circles of prophetic outline. He doesn't give them a left to right Western chart like we would appreciate. That's not how the Jewish mind works. The Jewish mind works in mushy circles. It's going to happen in the near term. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. It's going to happen over time, repeatedly in a cycle. And then it's going to happen at the very end. It's going to happen in the near term when the Romans destroy the temple. It's going to prepare you for the book of Acts when you're standing in front of councils and Sanhedrins. You're going to be flogged for my sake. And then it's going to happen cyclically for the next whoever knows. But the Son of Man will come back. There will be not one advent. There will be two advents. And they couldn't comprehend it all. The first advent took 33 years. Remember the angels proclaimed the birth of the Christ and his ministry is 33 years. First advent was 33 years. Second advent is seven years. When the day of the Lord, when Messiah returns and now he invokes Daniel chapter seven language, the son of man will come on the clouds and that's the great culmination. So there's an immediate near-term fulfillment of Mark 13. There's a cyclical rolling in fulfillment of Mark 13 and then there's an ultimate culminating fulfillment of Mark 13. What's Jesus' point? Why are those two chapters side by side? These two spheres of teaching, they're supposed to overlap. This sphere and this sphere. And they lock in place like this. And it goes like this. Greatness is loving God and loving others. No matter what happens, things are going to get bad. You beware. You be alert. Jesus will tell them over and over again in the Olivet Discourse. You be on your guard. You be watching. Be watching for what? The skies? Yes. But also head on a swivel, looking for opportunities to love one another. There's going to be times of persecution and resistance and opposition. You love God and love others. Don't be looking for opportunities to suppress others and elevate yourself. Love God, love others. Even when it gets bad and it got really bad, certainly by the destruction of the temple in AD 70, certainly through various persecutions throughout the last 2,000 years, and it will be very bad at the very end. So what do we take away from this teaching that Jesus gives us in the final week of his earthly ministry on greatness. Let me walk through a couple summary implication points just to land this plane very briefly. Number one goes like this. Love is wanting another's highest possible good. If greatness is loving God and loving others, how do we do that? When Jesus gave that parable in the temple courts, he's expecting this time to be understood, and oh, they got it. The point was that God had always shown himself to be a loving God to his people, Israel, always. And Israel had always resented God for it. He'd always wanted their highest possible good, even to the point of sacrificially sending messengers, prophets, and finally his own son. God's love for his people is our model and our example. We love because of the sake of the one we love, not because of what we might get out of it. We all have the, the tendency to look at someone and go, mm, I, that's probably not going to work out too good for me. I'll hold off and let someone else love them. No, no, no. 
We love for the sake of the one that we're called to love. We look at God and who he is and what he has done and what he is like, and we marvel. We allow our hearts to tumble after this kind of person that is sovereign, but that also stoops low to lift us because he loves us so much. We look at the life of Jesus, the object of our faith, and we allow ourselves to just love him, to just be crazy about him, to marvel, to think that he is the personification and the picture and the likeness and the image of greatness. And he calls us to be in him. We then have the privilege and the prerogative to respond in love likewise because that is what this world needs. Little Christs, Christians we would call them, loving and living like Jesus did, indwelled by his spirit, equipped by his word, encouraged by his people, a person who begins to increasingly understand love like this will be free, will be great, and they will be free to our second point. And it goes like this. Give your life away. You'll be free to give your life away. This is Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Give God what is God's. Render to God what is God's. This is life as it was intended. We are created in God's image. St. Augustine said, God has made us for himself, and we are restless until we find ourselves in him. But when we do, we begin to enjoy and experience greatness in this life, even in the here and the now. Look, I get it. There's a lot of opportunities, seemingly now more than ever, to get wrapped up in politics and the scarcity of power and resources so that it just makes you so mad, just mad as all get out, that someone is taking your greatness. <laughs> no, they're not. You never really had it to begin with, at least not according to that methodology. That's not life. That's not even true liberty. Instead, look at Jesus and see how he did the hard work of organizing his life so that he could give it away because he loves his father and so much and because he wanted others to enjoy and experience the same level of love and relationship. So I wonder, when was the last time, has there ever been a time when you stopped, maybe for a whole day, maybe for a weekend, and you laid out a processed reorganization of your life that wasn't geared towards your own project of greatness, but was instead aimed at achieving someone else's good? That's life. That's liberty. It's the pursuit of someone else's happiness. Now, our own Mike Hall has done this at least two or three times. He actually leads a, a weekend where he gathers a bunch of people together and he calls it, give your life away. And he coaches them on how to actually arrange and organize your life so that you can enjoy and experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of somebody else's happiness. And those of you who have been through that, you know, it's a wonderful time. And I hope Mike does that again soon until he does. I want to encourage you to pray about, do I actually have life and liberty? Can I pursue someone else's happiness? I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, you will never experience joy to that extent. It'll be the greatest thing you've ever done in your life. So I challenge you to give your life away. Thirdly, in response to the Sadducees, let me just remind us, big God, open Bible. Big God, open Bible. I think it's fascinating how quickly Jesus corrects errors with biblical theology and doctrine. And yet, I still hear people all the time in Christian contexts talking about the irrelevance of theology and doctrine. No, 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 no. Look, we've already said it. We have been called to love one another, but that is based on something. Right doctrine drives right doing. Doesn't guarantee it. Right belief brings about right behavior. Doesn't guarantee it, but it puts us in the right direction. The Sadducees were mistaken about the resurrection, and so they lived like this life here and now was all that mattered. And so greatness now was all they could live for. But Jesus tells them that they are wrong about God and Scripture. We have and we serve and we love a great God that is revealed to us in the pages of his scripture and so that we do that together in love. And yes, theology and doctrine matters. See, greatness is loving God and loving others. Final point goes like this. Greatness isn't trying to be. It's upside down. That's what the kingdom of God does. Greatness isn't trying to be great. Let me put it another way. We might say it this way. Try hard not to try hard. 
when the gravity of your depravity begins to weigh you down and your eyes fall and you begin to imagine instinctively and immediately ways to support and edify your own greatness. That's okay. Pause. Step back. There's grace for that. Greatness is loving God and loving others. Your greatness is not your project. Do you really believe that when God sees you, he sees Jesus and he could not love you more? He could not accept you more. You have all that you need for life and godliness. That's what Jesus came to accomplish for his Father's glory and for our good. He did it, and it is finished. And so it asks the question, do you really believe this, or are you still living on the edge of your seat, looking for opportunities to increase your own greatness? I can just promise you pastorally, you will always be frustrated. You're never going to get there until you let go and recognize that greatness is loving God and loving others. So I invite you not to try harder, to be better. I'm inviting you to look at Jesus because the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. Look at him. Look at the dedication and the focus that he goes to temple courts, bringing on the collision and the confrontation and the conflict so that he would go to the cross, so that millions and millions of people could be invited into his greatness. I invite you to believe. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer. I invite you to shift, to repent, to rethink your thinking. Whatever you used to think about Jesus, that you would believe that he is the son of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And if you are a believer, I want to remind you of what this place could be, what this campus, what this church, what this community could be if a whole lot of people were pursuing life, liberty, and the happiness of somebody else. That's greatness. May it be. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together, to look together at Jesus, his life, his wisdom, his love, your sovereignty and love aimed at us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that despite our same heart condition as the leaders of Israel that mistreated and killed and shamed your messengers, we would have done the same thing. So thank you for grace. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, God, that you would be pleased to do for anyone in this place or listening remotely who does not know you, that you would do for them what you have done for us. For the rest of us, Father, who do know you, would you remind us all over again that this life is not about achieving our own greatness. It is about living in Christ's. And so we pray these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.